article. It's about page 800. In fact, if you use most editions of the ESV, you'll find it there. And you can turn there. We'll be in Malachi chapter 3, looking at verses 6 through 12. Turn there as I pray for us. Lord, we do come to you now, and we ask that you would make your word in Malachi heard, that we would hear your voice. We confess that we are so often stubborn in our sins, we are in denial, and so we pray that you would use this word, that we would hear your call to repentance and turn back to you, that your people here would grow in our repentance, grow in our desire to move towards you, grow in our walk in your direction. And we ask that if there are any here who are not yet believing, not yet have shown that decisive repentance towards Jesus, that you would even use these words in Malachi to affect that uh, change, to grant salvation even now. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Does, uh, does God need your money? Does God want your money? A lot of Preachers on TV says, they say, God wants your money. Maybe we, we cynically or, or rightfully say, I think they just want my money. But what, what about all the preachers who say that you can give money uh, in exchange for blessings? D- does God really do that? Is there a correspondence between how much you give and, and how big your blessings are? Or at the very least, can you kind of pay off some of your debts? Can you, you trade uh, charity for absolution from your sins? I knew someone who thought that way, who, who very consciously gave to charity because he knew about all his sins and he thought, I need to kind of balance this out. Can God be bought? Well, it's probably better to let God answer these questions. Last week in Malachi, we saw that God was fed up with the people's complaints. And that in response, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, was going to come. In other words, God was going to come in person to address them. And when he came, he would be a fire. That fire would both refine his people and consume sinners. But that raised the question, what determines whether or not someone is refined or consumed? What determines whether or not someone was among his people? Sinners are consumed, but it is also sinners who are refined. I mean, they wouldn't need refining if they weren't sinners. So which sinners are refined and which are destroyed? We answered that in two ways, biblically. The main answer we considered related back to the people's complaining. Those who complain about Jesus will be destroyed. Those who complain to Jesus in faith will be preserved, refined. Those who trust Jesus, who want him, and so bring their hurts and confusion to him, trusting him to be able to help, will find that Jesus refines them as he draws near to them. But remember, when you look down at the text, these verse numbers and these headings, they're additions. We added them to help us quickly reference the Bible, but they didn't exist in the original. Our text today is a direct continuation of our text last week, despite any printed breaks. It provides another way to answer that question, who is consumed and who is refined. God is continuing that topic. And the answer it gives hovers around the issue of money, which can make us uncomfortable. But don't check out now. If we pay attention to the text, we will hear the gospel in Malachi. We will hear good news in this prophet of the Old Testament. 
The text this morning invites you to experience Jesus, the Lord who came and is coming again, as a refining fire, not a consuming one. So, so let's look now at Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. I'll read the whole text out loud for us. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Right? We, we don't forget, this is a continuation of the text that came before it. And in the preceding verse, verse 5, which we looked at last week, God described his coming wrath against sinners. And now in verses 6 through 7, he immediately addresses how and why anyone survives any of that wrath. But he actually goes deeper into the answer than we did last week. Our passage opens with God providing the bedrock foundation that exists under any answer about how one is not consumed by his wrath. In verses 6 through 7, we have the truth at the base of the gospel, the truth at the base of of the good news. The first answer, the foundational answer to the question, how can man avoid being consumed by God's wrath, is not to be found in man at all. It is in God and in his character. Because I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God says, you, O children of Jacob, you, my people, are not consumed, right? Not consumed, very common word in the Bible, and it is often used to describe God's wrath. And in those contexts, describing God's wrath, it always means to be utterly destroyed, finished, to have nothing left. It's often paired with fire imagery and other eating language in the Bible. When God threatened to wipe out the people in the golden calf incident, he said, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, utterly wipe them out. David prayed against his enemies, God, consume them in your wrath, in your your heat, in your burning. Consume them till they are no more. In the lamentation after the destruction of Jerusalem and the ending of the kingdom, the poet wrote, the Lord consumed with his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that devoured its foundations. Ezra prayed, fearing the result of complacent sin. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? We understand in the Bible that God is a consuming fire. 
Verse 5 is describing, that's what verse 5 is describing last week. It says God would be a witness against some, that he would draw near for judgment. That is describing God consuming, totally destroying. And the reason some are spared that, the reason some escape the judgment of verse 5, the reason some are not consumed is because I, Yahweh, do not change. First and foremost, the survival of any is based not on something in them or about them. The survival of God's people is not based on something that they do or, or well up or present. It is based in the character and nature of God. I, Yahweh, do not change. So, so how does that work, though? Why are God's people preserved by God's unchanging nature? How does God's unchangeableness equal salvation for some? I mean, this logic actually appears quite often in Scripture. After all, it is the foundation for all salvation hope. Hosea said the reason God's saving love would win out in the end over the waywardness of his beloved was because I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. God is not a man, which harkens us back to the first time we heard that statement in Numbers. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and then he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and would he not fulfill it? The point is, unlike us who are so fickle, so prone to being tossed to and fro by the things going on around us, to changing our mind at the drop of a hat, to being surprised by the world and needing to rethink our plans, God is unchangeable. He is solid. His purposes cannot be defeated. God does not start something and then get discouraged, beaten up, and then quit. We do that all the time. Life beats you hard enough, you quit. And in the face of a repeatedly rebellious people, it might seem like God would just give up. Our passage says, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. From the days of your fathers, your forefathers, from the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in other words, the people have been turning aside from God for generation after generation. But the only reason they persist in existing is because God persists in his purposes. We, heard in, we hear in James, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, he formed a people for his own purposes. He desired to create a people for himself, a bride, a kingdom that would know all his goodness and love, that would represent him in the world, that would be together with him in perfect fellowship and joy. And what God started, he is going to finish. I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. The hope of salvation is rooted in God's commitment and ability to maintain his commitment in the face of repeated discouragement and disobedience. The hope of salvation is in his unchanging and unchangeable nature. How are any not consumed by God's righteous wrath when Jesus comes again? Because Yahweh is unchangeable and he will preserve and purify a sinful people. 
He will preserve them from that destruction. He will purify them from their sins because that is what he set out to do in the beginning. He made a promise and he will keep that promise. So that's where you look first, Christian. When you struggle over assurance of salvation, you first look to the bedrock of salvation. Yahweh is unchanging and he is absolutely committed to his promises. The good news about Jesus is not better yourself and then Jesus will welcome you into heaven. It is Jesus is absolutely committed to saving a sinful people that cannot better themselves and he does not change in that. Jesus does not swerve from his commitment to save you even as you fail him repeatedly. The same purpose Jesus had for you when you first felt drawn to him and strong in the faith, Jesus maintains even as your affection grows cold and you fall into sin. Jesus saves sinners and he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So that's the bedrock. That's how there is hope for salvation. Yahweh does not change and he made promises and he purposed to save a sinful people. And after establishing that bedrock, after laying that foundation, from that foundation, he then calls out to those sinful people. Look at the back half of verse 7. After he laid that foundation, he says, So, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is the language of repentance. That's what repent means, right? To turn back, to return. God is inviting the people to repent. In other words, to admit their fault here, to turn away from running headlong into sin uh, and with no shame, no fear. God is inviting the people to enjoy their fellowship with him again, to stop straying. This doesn't mean never ever sinning again, nor does it mean never struggling with sin. But it does mean a shift from the denial of sin the unapologetic participation in sin that has characterized the people the entire book. Look at at the rest of verse 7. It's it's the same thing we've seen over and over in Malachi. But you say, right, God says something, that they always have to respond, but you say, how shall we return? Now that question is not asking, what do we need to do to return? Like, oh, Lord, yes, I, I need to repent. Tell me what to do. That question at the end of verse 7 is, them denying the need to return. What do you mean return? How can we return? We never left. The people were nominally followers followers of God. They were participating in the public temple worship, and at least at this time in history, they weren't really worshiping Baal anymore. They were giving lip service to the one true God. But as we have seen over and over in the process of their lip service, they were actually failing to honor God, to respect his name, to glorify him. The people were despising Yahweh with their worship, with their costless worship. They were bringing animals that were lame or sick. They'd found dead already, cost them nothing. The priests were despising the Lord by approving the people's worship. The priests were supposed to teach the people, but instead they showed partiality to the people with their lame sacrifices. Remember, it benefited the the priests. It was good for them to have the people's favor, so they didn't say anything. The people were despising the Lord by being totally unfaithful in their relationships to each other. And then they still showed up to worship like nothing happened. And so their question, how shall we return to you, that again, it just betrays their stubborn heart. 
And God could have answered by citing the sins that he's already addressed in the book. But instead, he raises a new issue. He does this quite intentionally, we will see. This new issue is the issue of tithes and contributions. It's related to, but but still slightly distinct from sacrifices. Look at verses 8 and 9. Will man rob God? (laughs) Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. God says it's it's an absurdity to imagine that men would dare rob him. And yet that is exactly what the people were doing by neglecting to tithe. Neglecting to bring their designated contributions and gifts to the temple. What God wanted from them was to bring the full tithe. Bring everything you have been commanded to bring. Aha, I knew it. This is about my money. God wants my money. Maybe just the priests, they want my money. Slow down for just a second. We have to understand what the tithe was. What, what were the actual laws that defined and regulated tithing? Well, I mean, what were the main points about the tithe? What, what was the rationale? By and large, the Western church tends to be weak on Old Testament law. And Leviticus is famous for being a killer of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans. Boom, you're done. Which is a shame, as we will shortly see. The tithe is not a totally unfamiliar word to most people. I feel like if you ask the average person on the street what the tithe is, a fair number of them would be able to say, oh, tithe is the money that you're supposed to give to church. Church people would probably be able to tell you, yeah, tithe was a tenth. You're supposed to give a tenth of your income to church. So the general kind of common working definition of tithe is 10% of your income that you're obligated to give to God. That definition is simplistic to the point of being wrong. That is a bad definition of the tithe. We all know that sometimes when we explain things, we have to simplify them, and we understand not all the nuances are being captured. But that definition just misses too much of what the tithe was all about. So so let's actually go back to the Pentateuch, to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where we find all the laws about tithing and read them. We need to fill in some details, maybe even dispel some misconceptions. Let's look at the very, very first law that we find about tithing. It's in Leviticus in 27. You don't have to turn there. I'll read these for you. Leviticus 27, we read, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. Pretty simple summary. You tithed from everything you produced. Took a tenth. That's, that's what tithe means. It does mean tenth. From everything. You also had, but you also had other uh, contributions and occasions for tithing. So actually, if you read the whole Old Testament law, it works out to being a lot more than a tenth that you are obligated to bring. That's not the main point. Here's the main point. The tithe is said to be holy, set apart for Yahweh. It's considered his In other words, you are supposed to give it to Yahweh. But the key question is, how? What does it mean to set something apart to Yahweh, to God? 
There's this this old joke. I saw it in an 80s movie, that 80s movie, Short Circuit, about the robot. There's a joke in that movie. Three ministers were debating about how much money they should give to charity. And one said, I know, let's draw a circle on the ground, and we'll toss all the money up in the air, and whatever lands in the circle, we'll give to, to God. The second minister says, no, no, we'll draw the circle on the ground, we'll throw all the mini- money in the air, and whatever lands outside the circle, we will give to God. Third minister said, no, no, we will throw all the money in the air, and whatever God wants, he will keep. This is the point. How, how do you give money to God? How do you give crops to God? How do you give animals to God? What does it mean to give to Yahweh, who says in the Psalms, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? How do we give something to God? Well, if we keep reading the law, we find our answer. Here is from Deuteronomy 12. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Did you catch it? There were two parts to it. Here again, we hear hear, hear it elaborated on in Deuteronomy 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Did you hear it? How did you set apart the tithe to Yahweh? How did you give it to him? You ate it. But you only ate it in a special place where God made his name to dwell. In other words, in Jerusalem, at the temple, dedicating it all to Yahweh. But you ate your tithe. How on earth is you getting to eat your tithe, giving it to God? You see, what God was calling people to do with the tithe was to give him their trust and their allegiance and their heart. Remember, this, this is an agrarian society. We don't live in an agrarian society, so we forget some of this stuff. Eating meat and produce might not seem like sacrifice to us. Like, if I get to eat pot roast, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything. But it was to them. Eating meat was a relative rarity, only for special, special occasions. You wouldn't kill a calf or a sheep. Those were work animals, wool-producing animals. You wouldn't just wantonly eat your produce. You'd store it. You'd hoard it. You'd sell it for money. That's the natural tendency to regularly, by command of God, have to take the first of your crop, the best of the fruit, and the firstborn of your animals and consume it would take faith. Trust that Yahweh would provide. The tithe purposely forced a type of loss so that you would trust God. You know, many foster children hoard food. You give them a bag of chips, maybe they eat one, and then they hide the rest. You give them candy bar, you find later that they haven't been eating those. They have a stockpile of candy bars hidden underneath their bed. Many of these kids came from situations where they did not know how long it was going to be before they got their next meal. Their trauma creates a fear that is not easily overcome. 
The tithe law is like God the foster parent saying to the foster child, you eat that whole fruit bar and enjoy it. I promise there will be another one. It's also giving God your allegiance. You couldn't eat the tithe at home. You had to travel, right? You had to make the effort to travel to the one place where God made his presence specially known. Right? This took, again, effort, time, energy, more money. You had to go to the temple. You had to trek there, make the journey. You had, and that forced you to consciously remember, God gave me this bounty. It belongs to him. I'm bringing it back to him. The law that the tithe was only eaten in the temple area is particularly designed to remind the Israelites that y- about Yahweh and help them connect all that they had with his provision and his ownership, not just of their stuff, but of them. He owned them. He owned their time. He owned their allegiance. The whole law kind of imaged the tribute paid by vassal kingdoms to superior kingdoms. You had to come as a symbol that you owed allegiance to Yahweh. You had to go to his house. You had to eat the tithe, your tithe before him, sending a message to you and anyone watching, I belong to the one true God. All that I have is from him. I give it back to him by trustingly eating it while declaring my allegiance to him. You don't have a party just anywhere. You had your party at God's house because you belong to him and the food belongs to him. Additionally, your tithe supported the ongoing temple ministry. You didn't eat the whole tithe. I mean, you wouldn't be able to, right? These, aren't, these guys weren't gardeners. They were farmers. If I, turned, if I turned 10% of my paycheck into food, I wouldn't be able to eat it all. I mean, I know, I know I like to eat, but I wouldn't be able to do it. There'd be a lot left over. The majority would be left over because it, it would be a lot. That leftover majority portion of the tithe was given to be shared among the Levites and the priests in order to support that temple service because they didn't have fields that they worked. To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So the tithe did indeed support and sustain the the ministry. It was also used for charity. I mean, every three years, we read, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. The Levite still got it in the third year, but you also dedicated that year to helping the disadvantaged sort of proto-benevolence fund that was replenished every third year that people could come. You'd have this stockpile and people could come as needed. The tithe maintained the existence of the official worship ministry so that Yahweh could have a temple and priests. It also cared for those in need. And so giving it demonstrated the people's allegiance. Having to go to the temple to eat it demonstrated the people's allegiance to Yahweh as their Lord. But it's also giving God your heart. You shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. You hear that? That's a command. You are to come and rejoice. Enjoy getting to eat this meal. Enjoy eating without worrying about the cost. Enjoy eating meat. Enjoy eating the fruits and the grain and the oil. Celebrate before God. 
fellowship and enjoy God's presence, his provision, and his goodness. I mean, that, the passage continues in Deuteronomy. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, right? Because remember, farmers could theoretically be quite a lot that they'd have to trek there. So if the way is too long for you, you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand, right? So you sell the stuff, take the money, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Get your favorite food. Get your favorite beer. I know we're Baptists, but that's what it says. Get whatever you want and eat it and drink it before me and rejoice. God just wants your money? No, God wants your heart, your trust, and your allegiance, and your joy. So the tithe was the portion set aside of your income, often quite more than 10% when you actually read all the laws, that was set apart to Yahweh. And by traveling, taking that, that income traveling to Yahweh's temple and then consuming it in celebration and giving the rest to support the temple, giving it to the poor. You demonstrated your trust in Yahweh to provide for you. You demonstrated your allegiance to him as your only Lord and you enjoyed fellowship with him. Remember the stated reason for all this. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You do this to learn to fear God, to trust, ally yourself to, and enjoy God, is to honor and respect his name. Right? That's, that's what we're talking about when we say fear God. Not, not just scared, but honor, respect, tremble. We've seen that over and over in Malachi. That's the issue. They were not honoring God. If you ally yourself to God, if you trust him, if you enjoy him, that honors him. That respects him. It gives him glory. Jesus, Yahweh incarnate, wants your trust. He wants your allegiance. He wants your enjoyment of him. He wants you to draw near to him in faith, to trust him alone to take care of you, acknowledge only him as Lord, and to rejoice in his goodness to you. All this makes the tithe the perfect thing, the perfect law, the perfect issue for God to cite as an example, as the picture of how the people need to return to him, to repent, to turn back to him. How shall we return to you? We haven't gone anywhere. Yes, you have. You do not trust Yahweh to provide. You do not demonstrate your wholehearted allegiance, and you don't enjoy him. So Yahweh says, bring the full tithe. Get back to the the faithfulness embodied in those commands to tithe. Come back to me. Trust me. Acknowledge me. Enjoy me. Look at how God continues in the rest of the passage kind of surprising again might even make us uncomfortable in our theological circles verses 10 through 12 bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the lord of hosts if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Yahweh says, bring it. Test me. See, I will open the windows of heaven. I will rain down blessings on you. The rest of the nations will see and recognize that you are blessed by the God of heaven. There's really two things to unpack here. How does God's command to test him square with all the other stuff the Bible says about testing God? All negative. And is this, is this prosperity gospel? Give to God and then he will give to you. You will become materially successful and prosper if you give enough. Does obedience lead to material prosperity? Number one, testing God. I mean, it, it is astounding what God says. Put me to this test. It's astounding because isn't putting God to the test bad? I mean, if you know your Bible, surely you hear ringing around your head somewhere at some point, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He said that in Deuteronomy. And the rest of the Bible speaks pretty negatively about all the times the people tested Yahweh. Testing language is usually used when God is rebuking the people, such as in the Psalms, like in Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Or again in Psalm 78, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 106, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and they put God to the test in the desert. You get the idea. So why does God tell the people to test him here in our passage if testing him is a bad thing? The context and content of the testing is totally different in each case. In all of the testing that God condemns, the people are testing by disobeying. In other words, they're, they're testing God's patience. They are withholding obedience out of fear or laziness or any other number of reasons. Or or sometimes they're promising obedience in exchange for something, trying to hold God hostage. When Gideon tested the Lord sinfully, he was withholding his obedience. He knew what God wanted of him, but he pressed it out of doubt in his case. He said he wasn't going to obey yet until he had more confirmation. So you can test God by withholding obedience saying, I won't obey you until, or if you do this for me, then I will obey. But here in Malachi, God is literally commanding the exact opposite. He is saying, test him by obedience. Test him by giving him trust, allegiance, and enjoying him. These are literally two opposite ends of the spectrum. Testing God by withholding obedience or testing God by obeying. The latter is not sinful. It's what God is commanding. The command to test God in Malachi is akin to the command, taste and see that the Lord is good. Test, taste, return to him. Trust and love him. See how God will draw near to you for blessing. If you draw near to God, giving him your tithe, giving him the full tithe, that is giving him your full trust, allegiance, enjoying him, he will bless you. Test me, God says. See what kind of God I am. Taste and see. But isn't that a a promise of prosperity in return for obedience? It kind of sounds like the huckster preachers on TV. Can we expect material prosperity in return for our obedience? 
Does, does this promise in Malachi apply to us today, sitting in these pews? Yes and no. If we understand this promise in its biblical context, we can indeed apply it to ourselves. But it is not a promise for material prosperity in response to obedience. You have to remember, at the time, the people of God were constituted. They were organized as a nation. And God indeed promised to bless that nation as a whole, corporately, in response to obedience. God is addressing them as a nation. We saw earlier in Malachi, it was mentioned again in our passage this morning, the people were actually currently experiencing as a whole poor yields. They weren't doing well agriculturally, economically. God says here, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God is relating to them as a nation. The reason things aren't going well for your nation is because of your national disobedience to me. Not because of some one-to-one individual correspondence between your obedience and the amount of material blessing that God promises. And remember, there, there is a typological function to the people's organization as a nation, which is a fancy way of saying the nation of Israel was meant to image things, to be a picture, to point forward, to teach about God and how he relates to people, how he relates to individuals. God's blessing as an obedient nation, God's blessing and obedient nation as a nation was meant to be a picture and a witness to outside nations. The reason why that blessing had to be taken away in the face of disobedience is the picture wouldn't work anymore. The national testimony wouldn't communicate what God was trying to communicate to the surrounding nations if Israel was idolatrous and unfaithful. Ultimately, there is going to be material blessing in the fullness for God's people. His blessing Israel in the promised land was only ever meant to be a a picture of that. That ultimate blessing, that ultimate material blessing that's coming, that's the new heavens, the new earth. Israel in the promised land was supposed to be a, a sort of preview, a trailer, a picture of the greater reality that the new heavens and the new earth would be. God's people in his land enjoying his rule. But it was only ever a picture. And God's people are not organized as a nation anymore. There was a transition that happened when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. The old pictures gave way to new reality. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial ministry. He died to truly atone for their sin. And his people were called to exist not as a nation in one geographical location anymore, but as assemblies of people in every nation. They are called to gather in those nations and to testify to their, their neighbors in those nations of Jesus' ultimate rule over all creation, his coming judgment, and the salvation that he offers in his life, death, and resurrection. So now God's people are organized in churches, assemblies, little clusters within nations, without political or geographical jurisdiction. The church, the the gathered people of God, is called the nation of priests in the New Testament. We are the nation anymore, but not we, we are the nation now, but not a literal nation. The church is not the ruler of a particular land that God has entrusted to it as a symbol of the future heaven. In fact, the main image that the New Testament uses for the church is exiles. The church are exiles. We are living in a land not our own while we wait for our heavenly home. 
What God promises us now in this time is not material prosperity in response to obedience. I mean, there was never, even in the Old Covenant, a one-to-one correspondence between material prosperity and obedience at the individual level. You're ever tempted of constructing this as a mechanical trade. Even in Malachi, we're getting it wrong. So remember, obedience in this passage isn't really about doing X once and then getting Y, giving some money to God, then you get his blessing. The next time you can give some more and get more blessing and so on and so forth. No, obedience in this passage is a corporate call to the tithe, which was chosen for its symbolic weight. Obedience here is a call for the people as a whole to come to Yahweh with faith, allegiance, and joy. It's not a mechanical trade of good works for prosperity in Malachi 3, and there's no mechanical trade now. In the Old Testament, God promised to sustain and exalt the nation as a corporate whole, as a witness if they were obedient, as a picture of what heaven would one day look like. And God promises to sustain and exalt the church as a witness today. If we trust Jesus, if we are loyal to him, if we enjoy him, he promises to bless our life together and our witness. He will build us up. He will draw us ever closer to him. He will draw closer to us. He will cleanse us from our sins. We will grow in holiness and knowledge of God and increase in our joy in him. And our life together as a church will be a little picture of heaven. Just like the Israelites' life together in the land was meant to be a type of picture of heaven. If we recognize Jesus as Lord of all, and so we give our time and our money and our energy to his bride, to the church, to to the work, to the difficulties and joys of being God's gathered people, Jesus will bless that. Our life together will flourish, not necessarily materially, but spiritually. And our witness will increase so that it becomes visible to outsiders. There's something special about that community. Look at how they love and thrive. Look at what trust and loyalty and joy in Jesus Christ results in. You are called today, Christian. You are called to spend the first and best of your time, money, and energy on Jesus. That includes supporting the ministry, sure. There is an analogy between the church and the temple, as we saw earlier in Malachi. Pastors are supposed to have an official teaching ministry that parallels the priests of the Old Testament. Paul the Apostle does make that connection. Just as the Levites were supported, so the church should support its dedicated teachers and ministers, so they all can benefit together from God's word being taught. In 1 Corinthians, we read, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You ought to give so that Sunday mornings can happen. But if all you're doing is signing a paycheck, doesn't matter the amount, and dropping it in the offering plate so that Paul and I can have a paycheck, that isn't the tithe. You need to spend the first tenth, in other words, the best of your time and energy and money on the ministry and on the people. Together we are building each other up, teaching each other, enjoying Jesus' goodness through each other. God is calling you to much more than just making sure Paul and I eat. Spend your money liberally in hospitality. Spend your money liberally in buying good books or other resources to know God's word better. If you're a studious person, Bible study software is expensive. Do it. Just spend the money. Spend your money and time on conferences and visiting missionaries. 
Don't just mindlessly give a check. Actively plan for how you can order your life around Christ. That stuff should literally be at the top of our budget considerations. Spend your time and energy and money liberally on fellowshipping with your fellow believers, on studying God's word on your own and together. Be an encouragement or an accountability partner for someone who needs it. Pray together. Disciple each other. That takes time and energy and money. Plan for your best to go to Christ. Older husbands, open up the schedule. Chill out for dinner with the younger husbands. Read a book together. Go to Bible studies. Go to book studies. Start book studies. Give to the Benevolence Fund. Help the needy. Identify ministries that are worth your individual support, whether they be something you can actively serve in or support financially. God does not promise material prosperity in return for this, but he does promise to provide for this, to bless this, and to pave the way for ultimate prosperity in the new heavens and the new earth. And to let us have a little taste of that now. To have a little taste of heaven now. This isn't about earning heaven, but it is about trusting Jesus, giving him our allegiance, and enjoying him. When we trust Jesus, when we worship him as God alone, when we love him, He promises to count his righteousness for us. He promises to represent us in his death so that our sins are covered. That's justification by faith. We're not earning anything, but he is inviting us into life together with him. We don't earn anything with our faith, but Jesus does bless our faith by preserving us through this life and eventually giving us the fullness of the heavenly life to come. Our, our New Testament reading this morning was basically a, a New Testament a paraphrase of the whole issue here in Malachi. You remember we heard it from Jesus' mouth, Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek First, the kingdom of God. If you want a specific application, here is a really specific application we'll end with. Just an example, but consider it. Next week is potluck. The sermon text is John 10, verses 22 through 42. Plan to be at potluck. Skip other things. Forget other ways you can spend your Sunday afternoon. Set aside that time for Jesus. Go buy something really nice for potluck. Don't worry about that money. Set aside that money for Jesus. Every day, take time to read and pray through the sermon text together by yourself or with your family. Don't worry about that energy. You set aside that energy for Jesus. Maybe you make some special recipe that requires you to wake up early in the morning to get started on. So you're up at 6 a.m. to throw your food in the crock pot or the oven. Then you spend the time before service praying for the church members and the worship service that's going to happen in a few hours. Then you come and worship Jesus, sing to Jesus, pray to Jesus, listen to Jesus, and then stay after and enjoy really good food together with Jesus' bride, your church family, discussing the sermon for an hour or two, challenging each other, encouraging each other, rejoicing together, building each other up in faith and hope and love. If you're a visitor, come. Don't worry about the awkwardness. Like I'm sitting down and eating with people I don't know. Set aside that awkwardness and concern for yourself. Replace it with concern for Jesus. Come, rejoice, enjoy Jesus. Eat his tithe in his presence. God promises to bless that. He promises to provide for that kind of life together. He promises to strengthen our church through that, to strengthen us individually, spiritually, 
to increase our witness, our competence, our Christ-likeness so that we will be better evangelists and our church will be a better heavenly outpost. God draws near to that type of life together as a purifying fire, burning away all our sin, making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ so that one day we will enjoy Jesus face to face with him. God does not change. On that basis, he he invites you, turn from your sinful ways, test Jesus, bring him the full tithe. I'll see you next week. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for your unchangeable character, and we thank you that you have extended an invitation to us, even in our repeated sin, to return to you, to bring the full tithe, to offer you our trust, our allegiance, and to enjoy you. So we ask that you would work this out in our hearts now. Grant us not to fear Uh, providing for ourselves. Grant us not to be tempted towards giving allegiance to other things for fearing, associating with your name. Grant us a greater joy in you than any other pleasure in this life. I pray that we would know just in part a taste of the heavenly goodness that is coming, that we would take seriously these laws that you have commanded clearly for our good and for our joy. So we do ask that you would help us now to return to you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.